Well, we there yet? No! Are we there yet? Yes. Really? No! Are we there yet? No! Are we there yet? No, we are not! Are we there yet? No! Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Hey, that's, hey, not, that's not funny. Hey, that's really that's immature. That's really immature. See, this is why nobody, is why likes, no one likes ogres. All right, you're All lost. Right, you're lost. I'm gonna just stop talking. Finally. But this is taking forever. Shrek, it ain't no in-flight movie or nothing. The kingdom of far, far away, donkey. That's where we're going. Far, far away. All right, all right, I get it. I'm just so darn bored. Well, find a way to entertain yourself. <sighs> Five minutes. Could you not be yourself? For five minutes! Ah! Are we there yet? Yes. Oh, finally! <laughs> Poor donkey. Not even an in-flight movie for him. Are we there yet? Question. Has anybody ever heard those uh, words on a road trip? Anybody ever said those words on a road trip? I, I remember taking road trips as a kid, and I got to tell you, they were pretty rough. Uh, our car had no air conditioning, only an AM radio, and there was no such things as two-screen DVD players, and I don't even think the 8-track was invented yet, all right? And so you're wondering, how, how did we entertain ourselves? Oh, by... One way was by counting certain types of cars. Um, another way was by getting passing trucks to blow their horn at us. You know, we'd, we'd do this, and if a, if a truck would, would honk their horn, that, that would get us through like another uh, 15 or, or 20 miles. Uh, another way we did it, especially when heading south on 95, was to read the Pedro south of the border billboards, all right? Uh, they're not as exciting anymore. And the, the other way we, we entertain ourselves was by annoying uh, our parents, uh, by saying such things as, Mom, he's touching me. He, he's looking at me. Mom, Mom, tell Michael to stop passing gas. I'm hungry. I'm hot. I'm, I'm bored. I have to go to the bathroom. And, of course, the all-time classic, are we there yet? I mean, think about it. How could they even get us to understand how far we had to go when they couldn't say things like, hey, we won't be there until you watch 17 more episodes of SpongeBob on your two-screen DVD player while eating all your cookies and candy. And now, occasionally, my, my mom or dad, usually my mom, would reach behind us with that 12-foot arm and smack us. Shut up! Be still! Stop it! And my dad would say things like, don't make me pull this car over. He never did. <laughs> or that famous worn out line that everybody knew he was never going to do. Hey, if you guys don't knock it off back there, I'm going to turn this car around and we're going back home. You can forget all about Disney World, even though we just passed in the state of Florida. <laughs> Not one time did he do it. Uh, maybe if he did, it would have helped. Yeah, road trips, you got to love them especially with kids in the back seat. 
A couple weeks ago, the staff and I, uh, we went on a road trip to Savannah, Georgia uh, for a conference. And on the way down, Randy was in the back seat. Uh, 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 on the way back home, I was in the back seat. It was pretty much the same thing as when I was a kid. I'm hot. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I got to go pee. Are we there yet? <laughs> Maple Grove, welcome to chapter six of the story. Wandering. A conversation I'm calling, Are We There Yet? And, and like I've been saying, if, if you're new to Maple Grove, or even if you've been here for decades, you cannot have picked a better time to be here. Because we are spending the bulk of the year 2013, from January to September, looking at the greatest story of all time, God's story, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And we're using this book right here, the story, as our guide. And, and basically, the story is a collection of biblical passages uh, arranged in chronological order designed to tell us the overall story of the Bible. And in chapter 6 of the story, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous road trips of all time, the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And to be honest, when you first look at it, it seems like a pretty easy journey to make, nothing too difficult. Uh, this week, I, I, I pulled up a map and traced out the most obvious path, the most obvious route that you would assume they would have taken. Let's put, put the map on the screen. Uh, oh, there it is. Oh, it was already on there, but not on my screens. See? I told you. All right. It, it, you can see up there, you see the peace sign, all right? That's like the Red Sea. You look at the, look at the left one, you see the land of Goshen. And, and the most obvious path would have been one that the book of Isaiah calls the way of the sea. It would follow the Mediterranean all the way up to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. It, it's about 170 miles, okay? And to top it off, you know, it, it's a very scenic route, you know, it, and so God's people leave Egypt thinking, you know, this isn't going to be so bad. You know, I mean, it's going to be a nice trip. It's going to be like driving up the Pacific Coast Highway in California. It's going to be like driving the A1A in Florida. It's only 170 miles, no big deal. And now, now let me uh, try to get this distance in perspective. If we traveled from Charlottesville to Norfolk, that's about 170 miles. You know, I, I Googled that this week, and it, it, it's, a, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour trip to get there. And then what I did, I didn't notice. It's on my phone, too, and it's on Google Maps. There's this little icon, little walking icon. I didn't know that even existed. And so I clicked on there and said, how long would it take for me to walk to Norfolk, Virginia? And it says it would take me 56 hours or two days and eight hours and that seems pretty aggressive, right? I mean, it, I mean that, mean, that obviously means you're not stopping for anything. Not to eat, not to sleep, not to go to the bathroom. Okay, but if we got a little more realistic and decided that we'll walk about 20 miles a day, all right, that'll give us time to sleep, eat, and go to the bathroom. It will take us about eight and a half days. And now, for fun, since I, I just met that little walking icon, I said, I wonder how long it would take for me to walk from here to Seattle, Washington. So I plugged that in there. 192 hours or 37 days. Okay, any takers out there? You want to hoof it with me to Seattle? And so here we are, chapter 6 of the story. 
And before the Israelites set out for the road trip, uh, they, they pull up Google Maps for directions, and they see that the promised land is about 170 miles away, 56 hours if, if they walk nonstop. But they're not going to do that, right? right? And besides, there's about 2 to 3 million of them, right? It's hard to crowd just two people, let alone 2 to 3 million, and they got a bunch of stuff to take with them. And so maybe they figure at tops, it's going to take us about a month to get to the promised land. But if you read chapter 6 of the story, and by the way, you didn't think I was going to ask, right? Okay? Who did their homework? Who read chapter 6? If you read chapter 6 of the story, I think I said chapter 3, okay? It, you know that's not how things happen, right? Instead, God took them on a much different route, one that was anything but a direct route. And, and here's how I, I wanted to find the direct route if we can. Uh, the direct route is the shortest distance the most scenic route, and it's the most popularly traveled road. And and in case you didn't know this, God's not a big fan of the direct route, is he? I mean, like, if you haven't experienced this in your own life, just let me tip you off right now that God doesn't usually choose the shortest distance, the most scenic route, in the most popularly traveled road, does he? And listen, that's the case here. The Israelites, they don't take the direct route to Egypt. Instead, they take a much different path when they go from Egypt to the promised land. Now let's look at that map again. And you can see the path they take. There we got our peace sign, right? They're in the land of Goshen. They go down. They, I'm going to get me one of those little pointers, laser pointers, right? That would be cool right now. And then if you're falling asleep, I could zap you in the eyes or something, all right? Okay, so they go to the land of Goshen, they cross over the Red Sea. Okay, wait, wait a second. What, what? I thought we were going up to PCH, you know? I already made some reservations, and I want to get an In-N-Out burger or something, right? And then they go down, down to the uh, Mount Sinai, which is kind of at the V of the, of the Red Sea, and this is where God gives them the Ten Commandments, right? We saw that last week. And, and this is where God said, hey, you know what? I, I want to take our relationship to the next level. I, I want to not just talk to a few people and relate to a certain individuals. I, I want to talk to the entire nation. And for God to take, remember, for God to take his people to this new level, certain things needed to be in place, right? This is from last week. Uh, 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 God needed to have a standard for his people to follow, right? The Ten Commandments. Uh, there needed to be a place for his presence to dwell. And then there needed to be what? A means for a sinful people to approach a holy God. Well, they spend about a year, can't right there at the bottom of the peace sign, right? And, and, and much of that time was spent building the tabernacle. And that's where God's presence would dwell. And by the way, when they were camping, anybody know where the tabernacle was placed? Was it like on the edge somewhere? It was where? Right dead center in the middle. Right in the center, you know, because God's presence was what? To be the center of their lives the center of everything that they did. Okay, and then when, the, when the, Moses finished the work and it was, it, it was the first day of the first month of the second year, one year from the very day they left Egypt, the glory of God came in and it filled the temple. And then we read this in page 71 of the story. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, less than three weeks from the time God's glory filled the tabernacle, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle the covenant law. 
Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. So after a year in the area of Mount Sinai, they're off on their long-awaited road trip. They pack their bags, they, they throw their kids in the back of the minivan, they, they grab all their road trip snacks, they grab their GPS, and, and they type in, you know, they grab their GPS, they have, they have, a, they have an iPhone, they, okay, I want to go to the promised land, to here from my present location, and according to Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2, it should take them about 11 days to get there. Deuteronomy 1-2 says it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which is the south side of the promised land. Okay, so turn right on Mount Seir Road and go straight for 11 days. And it's supposed to take just 11 days, and it took how many? 39 years. Hey, if you're like me, Do you find traveling a competition? I mean, I mean, it, it's a clock, right? And with these suckers right here, I mean, these GPS, I mean, I'm going to plug this in. Okay, from Charlottesville to Savannah, you say I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there at 5 o'clock. I can beat that. I can beat that. And I'm watching that sucker the whole time. I mean, you pull into a rest area, you get back in. How much time did I lose, right? You know, you know I mean, it's just the way it is. And, and, and I can beat this. I can do this. Can you imagine Moses? I mean, he, he plugs in 11 days. We can beat that. I bet we can do it in 10, maybe nine if I push these suckers a little bit. 39 years later, they finally make it to the promised land. And this period of Israel's history is known as the wandering. God's people spend 39 years wandering in the wilderness. I mean, can you even begin to imagine how many times Moses heard, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, this week as I studied and reflected on chapter 6 of the story, it's a huge chapter, right? I mean, it, it covers all of Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's the longest chapter in the story you read so far. I mean, what we're talking about, it's over 2,000 verses, over 60,000 words. As I reflected on this, I, I started asking myself some questions like, why weren't they there yet? Why did it take so long? And exactly who was waiting on who? Uh, were the Israelites waiting on God or was God waiting on them? See, the, unescapable, the inescapable conclusion we find as we read through the story, through the Bible, is that God is never in a hurry, especially if he knows he needs to do some work in his people. Sure, God may tell his people the ultimate destination, but that does not mean they're going to make it there in 11 days. In fact, more times than not, it takes a pretty good chunk of time to get there. Abraham was told, you're going to be a father of a great nation, and it's decades before he has his first kid. Uh, Joseph, as a teenager, has a dream from God that, that one day his entire family would bow down to him. However, that would not happen for another 13 years. A 13-year road trip that was full of detours and twists and turns and obstacles and pits and prison and slavery. 
But let me ask you, exactly who was waiting on who? I I mean, was Joseph as a self-centered, spoiled 17-year-old? Was he really ready to to live in that land? Was was he really the person he needed to be to fulfill that dream? Or, or, Or to put it another way, was Joseph at the age of 17, was Joseph there yet? Moses, at the age of 40, feels compelled to do something to free his people. It didn't go so good. And and so Moses spends 40 years enrolled at the University of Sinai studying in their wilderness program. I mean, it would take him 40 years to get his degree. Uh, David is anointed by Samuel to, uh, to replace Saul as king of Israel. He will not wear that crown for another 20 years. No, no, God's never in a hurry. And what should have took 11 days ends up taking 39 years. And, and here's some stuff that, that hit me this week as I was trying to put this conversation together. Number one is this, that, that being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was always about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, power, and purposes throughout the world. Never about geography. And and number two, the second thing that hit me was this, that God has always been more concerned about who his people are becoming than where they are going. And, And the third thing that hit me is this, The bottom line is that God's people were not there yet in the promised land because they were not there yet. They were not yet who they needed to become. You see, God's more concerned about who his people are becoming than where they're going. And so God has to do some work in the Israelites. He has to do some work in their hearts and their minds as they wander in the wilderness for 39 years. And and no, it it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always fun. And and yes, there would be many detours and twists and turns and obstacles along the way. And and yes, many times it would get pretty ugly. Let me rephrase that. Many times it would get downright grotesque because they ignore God's voice and direction. God would say, turn right one mile up ahead. And they said, ah, we're going left. And God had to say, recalculating, rerouting, don't think you're going to like this detour all that much. Are we there yet? I understand that there's a place that God wants to take us, his people. There's a a place he he wants us to be. There's a, a life that God wants us to live. There are dreams that God wants us to fulfill. There are good works that he has planned in advance for us to do. And, and sometimes we can even see the destination, right? We can see where we want to go, and we're like, come on, God. God, I got to go. Well, why is it taking so long for me to live this great life you have for me? Uh, but listen, here, here's what hit me this week and hit me kind of hard. That many times the reason we're not there yet is because we're not there yet. Get it? You stole my line, brother. Somebody slapped that guy. I wish my mom was here. She could reach you from the front row. 
<laughs> well, someone actually did it. All right. Go Jay. Did, you can hear it too. That's probably even on the tape. We slap you around in Maple Grove. Be ready. I got my man out there. I just call him Guido from now on. He'll be breaking some arms and legs. Okay. Maybe today, February 24, 2013, you find yourself like the Israelites in chapter 6 of the story, wandering in the wilderness. And not where or who you really want to be. Or who God created and intended you to be. I mean, you know that there's this place you want to be. You know that there's a person God called you to become, that there's a life he created you to live. And you also know that you're not there yet. And you also know, truth be told, that you've not been waiting on God. I've not been waiting on God. God's been waiting on me. And listen, here's what I want to do in our time remaining this morning. I want to to talk about six words uh, that describes what it looks like to become a people who are there. Six words that describe what it looks like to become a people who are there. But before we look at those six words, I, I, I want to I read two scriptures and then I want to pray. Is that all right? Even if it's not, I'm still going to do it. All right. And the first is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And I encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because the entire context of that verse is talking about this period of wandering and how they took wrong turns. And God said, hey, I wrote that down for you to warn you. And the other one is just encourage you today that because what we're talking about is from God's word, it can really make a difference. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It, it corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. It, it, I'm going to read that again, even slower. All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true to, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It, it corrects us. When we're wrong, it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it. And God wants to use his word this morning. God wants to use chapter 6 of the story to beat you up, to discourage you. No, to prepare and equip you for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we humbly come into your presence And God, we pray with palms open that we may receive from you. Uh, Father God, uh, we know that you care more about who we're becoming than where we're going. And God, many of us know that so much in our life that we know you want us to be just seems to be unfulfilled. We see the destination. We just can't seem to get there. And God, maybe today you'll speak some truth that'll help change that. And maybe today we'll see that, you know what, you want us to be there. And and man, if we're ready in 11 days, then we'll get there in 11, maybe in seven days, God. 
But God, I pray that you speak. I pray that you help us to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, six words that describe what it looks like to become a people who are there. The first word is the word content. And you'll see NGOC. That stands for, okay, I I thought it's kind of funny since we have NGIC here. But see, in God's kingdom, it's not NGIC, it's NGOC. NGOC, okay, NGOC. And that stands for no grumbling or complaining. (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny. All right, that would never work anywhere but Charlottesville, right? Okay, and it probably didn't even work here, but I'm going to pretend that it did. And, and, and let me tell you up front that we'll spend more time on this word than the other five put together because I, I don't think we realize what a really big deal it is to God or, or, or what a huge roadblock it is to us in our journey to becoming who God wants us to be if we're someone who grumbles and complains. Now, remember, God was building a nation, one worthy of his presence, a people different from any other. Now, people of other nations grumbled and complained and were never satisfied no matter how good they had it. But God's people were to be content. And by the way, we still are. I mean, Paul laid it out pretty straight, didn't he? Philippians chapter 2, do everything without what? Grumbling or arguing. Now, if you read chapter 6 of the story, you no doubt saw that the primary theme of their wandering is whining and complaining. Again and again, they just whine and complain about everything. And that really shouldn't surprise us because, after all, just a month out of Egypt, a month after seeing the Red Sea part, seeing God's power, experiencing deliverance, we read this in Exodus chapter 16. It's just a month. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. Oh, it's so wonderful. We ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out here in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Seriously? Seriously? And then right here in the opening pages of chapter 6, only three days into their road trip, we read this. Now the people complain about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And by the way, anytime we complain, it's within his hearing, right? It's like our mom, right? You're saying something in your bedroom as a kid. How did she hear that? I mean, they didn't even have bugs back then, but my mom heard everything. I got eyes in the back of my head. You must have ears too. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burnt among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. I like that. I mean, in other words, God is sticking his arm in the back seat and said, stop it, (laughs) cut it out, cut it out. You do not want me to pull the car over, and I will pull that sucker over. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers. I mean, they're starting to get excited about cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. They keep wailing, give us meat to eat. Moses, why is it taking so long? We're hungry. We want meat, Moses. 
We ate all the fish we wanted in Egypt. And we had cucumbers and leeks and garlics and onions, but nothing here tastes good. All we get is manna, manna, manna. Manna in the morning, manna pancakes in the morning. We snack on manna all day. Manna burgers, manna bagels, manna cotti, manna fries. It's manna, manna all day. And they sure had a winter last night, flaming manna souffle. And remember those lunches in Egypt at the Hibachi Grill. That was so nice. It was all free, no cost. Really? It only cost you your freedom. You were slaves. I mean, seriously, is the sun starting to melt their brains out there in the wilderness? I mean, was being a slave in Egypt, was that really such a good time? But listen, that's what people do when they complain. You see, they see every situation as better than the one they're currently in. I mean, either they're looking at something in the past or they're looking at a situation somebody else is in, and anything is better than what they've got. So there God's people are whining and complaining about the food that God provided for them every day. And we see this attitude of complaining come up again and again throughout chapter 6 of the story. Are we there yet? Moses, I'm hot. I'm hungry. Moses, she's looking at me. She's touching me. It's sandy out here. No, we're not stopping at Wendy's again, Moses. I hate Wendy's. It made me sick last time. I want to go somewhere else to eat, Moses. I want to go back to Egypt. It was so much better back then. And do you notice that this complaining was contagious? It starts on the outskirts, and then soon everyone's complaining. Have you ever seen or experienced that? I mean, all it takes is one person in the family, a few coworkers, or a half dozen people at church, and pretty soon it starts to catch on. It spreads like an infection. It becomes so toxic to everything. Toxic to your home life. Toxic to the work environment. Toxic to the church. See, understand, people who constantly grumble and complain they create this cloud that, that covers up the sunshine and keeps it from shining in. They're like giant sponges that just suck up all the joy that God wants to give us. Well, eventually, God had enough. God pulled the car over, and he says this, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, and you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we're better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you're going to eat it. And you'll eat it not just for a day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until, in fact, it comes out of your nostrils. You're eating meat, and it's starting to come out your nose. I love it. And you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have well before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why did we ever choose to follow you? You want meat? I'll give you meat. Now, so what God is doing, he's giving them some perspective. And oftentimes that's exactly what our complaining needs, a little perspective. Why? Because in our complaining, we lose sight of how blessed we really are. And we lose sight of all that God has provided for us. I, I, I was reading this week about a lady who went on a short-term mission trip, and she worked amongst some lepers, and she was there about a month. And 
uh, the final night, she gathered up everybody from some worship, and she said, does anybody have a, have a song they would like to sing? Anybody have a request? And a hand went up towards the back, and she looked and saw a woman with a disfigured face and no nose and no ears and no lips, and her hand is raised, but it has no fingers. She says, is, is, there, is there a song you would like to sing? And she says, yeah, could we sing that hymn one more time? Count your blessings. Just one more time. We forget how blessed we are. We're such babies. I mean, I'm in Bangladesh, and, you know, we're staying at a place up north, and it's kind of a, I got my own room, I got my own shower, but it's kind of dirty, not up to, you know, my standards, and I'm whining, complaining, while my brothers, pastors of Bangladesh, are sleeping on a mat on a concrete floor. Really, Steve? Sorry, it was so dirty, but, you know, and sorry your bathroom wasn't, your personal bathroom wasn't clean enough. And why is grumbling complaining such a big deal to God? Because whining is the opposite of worship. I understand worship is giving God glory for who he is and what he's done. Whining is ignoring who God is. It's overlooking everything that God has done. Whining is the opposite of worship. In Maple Grove, our life story is to be one of worship. It's to be one of giving glory to God. I mean, Jesus walked this earth. He showed us how to live. He gave us hope. He's preparing a place for us. Yeah, I know that, God, but there's a very long line at the bank, and I have so much laundry to do. And Jesus died on the cross. He took our punishment that we deserve. He took it upon himself. But, God, if I could just have a house like theirs, then I'd be content. It's kind of like God is holding up the walls of the Red Sea, and we don't even notice because we're annoyed that we have mud between our toes. I understand. One of the, the cures to grumbling is perspective. You know, Snoopy is sitting on top of his doghouse, and he's really ticked off because Charlie Brown's inside ha- having a Thanksgiving feast, and he's out in the cold with nothing but his dog food. And he's ticked, getting madder by the minute, until a thought came to him. He said, it could be worse. I could have been born a turkey. It could be worse. I want you to remember that phrase. Say it with me. It could be worse. Okay, when you leave this room, you're going to go out into the parking lot and get in whatever vehicle you drove in here, and you're going to be tempted to think, if I just had a newer car, a nicer car, a better car, a bigger car, a more expensive car, I'd be content because we get bombarded with that stuff all the time. But today, you're not going to do that. No matter what you're driving, you're going to open that door, and you're going to say with great passion and conviction, it could be worse. And when you come home and get into your house, you know, and you're going to be tempted to think, you know what, if I just had a nicer house, a bigger house, if I just had that room finished, if I just could remodel my kitchen, you know, then I'd be content, then I'd be happy. But you're not going to do that today. Today, you're going to walk in your house, no matter what it is, apartment or condo, and and you're going to say with passion and conviction, it could be worse. Because it could be, and it is for a lot of people. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up and roll over and you look at your spouse, you're going to, no, we won't go there, okay? (laughs) It could be worse. It really could be.
Are we there yet? If not, maybe it's because we're not content. The next word that describes people who are becoming is the word trusting. And like I said earlier, these are going to come at you really quick. But I don't think any of them are going to surprise you. And everyone is found in chapter 6 of the story. And again, I don't think anyone in this room is surprised that trusting is one of the qualities of people who are there. Trusting in what? Trusting in God and who God is and what God has done and what God has promised. And, and I just want to share two quick scriptures from chapter 6 of the story that speak to trusting in God. Uh, the first is found in Numbers chapter 11. And God has just told Moses, you know what, Moses? I'm going to give meat for all these people. And Moses is like, hey, you can't do that. There's a lot of people. No way that's ever going to happen. I don't think you can do it, God. God's response is the Lord's arm too short? In other words, Moses, do you think I've lost my power? And what happened? God brings in quail that goes as far as the eye can see three feet deep. Moses, didn't, after being used by God, didn't trust God. The other passage is just right here. It's in Numbers chapter 14. You know the story, right? God has them there. They could have gone in right there. They could have gone in right then. And, and not have the wander. God says, I'm going to give you this land. And they check it out. And 10 spies say, you know what? It's just too, the cities are too big. The people are too big. We can't do this. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? See, when we don't trust God and who he is, what he said, what he'll do, it's treating him with contempt. How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I performed among them. Are we there yet? Am I there yet? Are you there yet? If not, maybe it's because we're not trusting God. Who he is, what he said, what he's done like we should. We still think God's arm is too short. The next word is the word dependent. And listen, one of the things that God was trying to teach his people in the wilderness as he provided food for them every day, as he provided water from the rock, as God provided a, a, a cloud to protect them from the, the heat of the desert, as he provided a, a, a pillar of fire to keep them warm in the desert nights, as God caused their, their shoes. Imagine that. Pay less can make a... No, they'd go out of business, wouldn't they? You know, you know, shoes didn't wear out for a year. Clothes didn't wear out for a year. God was teaching them, you need to depend on me for your needs. You need to be a dependent people. Depend on me and no one else. And Jesus reinforced this, didn't he, in the Lord's Prayer? When he said what? Give us what? This day, our daily bread. God, every good and perfect gift is from you. And see, a people who are, becoming a people who are there means that we are not just only trusting and content, but that we are dependent on God. Are we there yet? Are we dependent on him? Uh, the next word is the word different. Different. Different is a word that describes people who are there. It describes becoming a people who are there. God, God's on top of thundering Mount Sinai. He's about to give the Ten Commandments, and, and he says this to the people. You will be a kingdom, a priest, and a what? Holy nation. A different nation. Different than, than what the world is like. 
Leviticus 11.45, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. God says, be different because I'm different. And these guys on the road trip, they had a hard time being different, didn't they? They're a whole lot like the world. In, in, in Numbers chapter uh, 25, you know, we, we, we find in Numbers chapter 25, 1 through 3, uh, page 82 of the story, God's people, they actually, you know, in the desert, God's providing for them. They're supposed to be different. They start hanging out with the people of that land. They, they start committing sexual immorality, and they start bowing down the false gods. They're supposed to be different than the world. Not the same. And then Moses in Deuteronomy, he reminds us new generation, right? Because we know that anybody over the age of 20 who said, we don't trust you, God, didn't make it. And he says, for you are, are a holy people. You are, you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people in the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. People who are becoming there, becoming a people who are there. Words that describe that are content. Am I there yet? Are you there yet? Does content describe who I am? Does trusting describe who I am? Does dependent on God? Does being different than the world? And then obedient. A hundred times in the book of Deuteronomy, you see the words, follow my commands, obey my commands. Obeying is a big deal to God. And not just in the Old Testament, right? Jesus said it like this in John. It's kind of interesting. Jesus, before he died, right? Before he was called up, in John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll what? you obey me. See, obey isn't a four-letter word, right? <laughs> it's a good thing. And Moses, before he died, stood before the people in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and he said this. He said, see, I, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and, and to keep his commandments, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. See, most said, you know what? you got to be a people who obey God. Am I there yet? Are you there yet? Are we living the dream God has for us? Are we the people God wants us to become? Maybe it's because we're, we're not being obedient. And then finally, a word that describes becoming a people who are there is the word devoted. And Moses said this in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, being devoted to God means that God is first, God is second, God is third, God is everything. It, it means that nothing comes before him. Six words that describe what it looks like to become a people who are there, content, trusting, dependent, different, obedient, devoted. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Question. Why is being there? 
Why is all this? Why is being a people who are content, trusting, dependent, different, obedient, and devoted, why is it such a big deal? Why all the fuss? I mean, why was this stuff so important to God that he would cause his people to wander for 39 years in the desert? Because as we said earlier, being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was always about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, God's power, and God's purposes throughout the world. Understand, God will use these qualities to shape our lives. Listen, listen, this is so important. I've been saying all this just to get here. Okay? This is the destination I want us to get to. You see, God will, will, it will use all those qualities to shape our lives in such a way that we will point people to him. You see, God is shaping our lives so that we will point people to him so they'll draw closer to him. God is shaping and designing our lives to point to him. Anybody know what this is? It's Coke. It's a bottle of Coke. Hard to find a 16 ounce today, let me tell you. I've been looking. <laughs> and, and see, you know, Coke designed their bottle to be very recognizable. I mean, it, it doesn't even matter if it has a label on You know what it is. It doesn't matter if it's actually in Bengali, right? You go, hey, that, that, that's a Coke bottle. And they designed it in a specific way, a specific shape so people know, hey, that is a bottle of Coke, and inside that bottle is something sweet. It is something good. Inside that bottle is the real thing. 1971, they had a commercial that went like this. It's a real thing. Coke is the way it should be. Did you catch that line? What the world wants to see is what? The real thing. It's the real thing. You see, the reason why all this is important is because God wants to use these things, these qualities of being content, of trusting, dependence on God, devoted to God, obeying God, being different than the world. He wants to use those things to shape our lives, to make our lives recognizable and people see it and so that we point people to God and the sweetness, the sweetness of being in a relationship with God. The world needs to see the real thing. And that's what it's all about. It's about us living lives that point other people to Jesus Christ. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? In Deuteronomy chapter 34, God takes Moses to the top of a mountain. 
And, and Moses stands on that mountain, and he gets a glimpse, right? He, he doesn't get to go because he messed up, but he's with God, so he's still cool, right? You know, and, and he gets to see just how beautiful and, and, and amazing it was. And, and I really believe that, that, that as Moses stood on that mountaintop, as he looked back on this journey full of scars and difficulties and trials, I, I don't think he looked, he had sour grapes. I, I think he just said, you know what? God is faithful. No matter what we went through, no matter what we've been through, no matter the difficulties, when he stood on that mountaintop, he knew that his God was faithful. Now, God is real and God is powerful in our own lives. When we stand on the mountaintop and we look back, we know that we serve a God who is faithful. God wants to work in my life and in yours to shape it, to point people to the sweetness. Isn't he sweet? I mean, he goes down better than Coke, right? I'm actually a Pepsi person, but I'll tell you what, you ice those suckers up in a bottle, they're pretty good. I, I, I drank a bunch of them already. You know, they're, they're really good, and God's even better. And we're going to stand, and we're going to sing the song that really speaks of the faithfulness of our God. And if you have any decision to make, you need some prayer. You're going through a difficult time. Our, our elders can pray with you. But let's stand and celebrate the faithfulness of our God. Father, we love you so much. And just be with us right now as we sing this song. I, I pray, God, that we celebrate your faithfulness. And, God, that no matter where we are in the God, you're on our team. You're behind us. You'll never give up on us, and you will continue to shape us, shape our lives in such a way that people are drawn to the sweetness of you. God, help us each to be the real thing that this world needs so desperately to point to you. In Jesus' name, amen.